Can a quantitative analysis of OCT images detect early diabetic retinopathy in patients without symptoms? I'm Greg Notstein, he's Scott Chriswanis, and this is New Retina Radio's coverage of the 2022 ASRS Annual Meeting. New Retina Radio spoke with Dr. Jennifer Lim, whose research team sought to learn whether imaging analyses of photoreceptor length and reflectivity parameters could serve as a biomarker for disease detection. We also sat down with Dr. Leila Vaisevich, who shared data on a pair of Phase 1 studies assessing the safety and efficacy of two gene therapies for achromatopsia. One of those two drugs may be going on to further study. Which one? Stick with us to find out. OCT imaging is used in routine practice to assess the severity of diabetic eye disease, but could early stages of diabetic retinopathy, perhaps even subclinical stages, be detected by OCT imaging? To learn whether a quantitative analysis of OCT features could be useful in detecting early diabetic retinopathy, we turn to Dr. Jennifer Lim. Dr. Lim practices at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she is the Marion H. Schneck Chair in Ophthalmology the Vice Chair of the Department of Ophthalmology, as well as the Director of Retina Service. Dr. Lim, welcome back to New Retina Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Scott and Greg. It's my pleasure to be here today. Could you summarize for our audience the purpose of the study that you presented at this year's ASRS meeting? Yes, I'd be happy to. We know that patients with diabetes have changes in their retina that occur at a subclinical level. And so sometimes when we look at the eye, we don't see anything. And yet when we do ocular imaging, we can actually see changes on the OCT scans. And so the purpose of this study was to see whether we could quantitate these changes on the OCT to be used as a biomarker for diabetic retinopathy. Can you tell us a little bit about who was enrolled in this study and what exactly you were looking to measure? We enrolled patients with diabetes mellitus that did not have diabetic retinopathy. We also enrolled patients with diabetes and mild NPDR and then compared them to controls. And what we did is we took pictures, you know, at the OCT AngioView machine, and we looked at these images and we actually measured the outer band distances. And the reason we did this was that we know the outer bands, the ELM, the ellipsoid zone, the interdigitation zone, and the RPE are indicative of the health of the photoreceptors and its support structures. And so we thought, well, qualitatively, we know that these bands change as the disease progresses, that is diabetic retinopathy. But nobody's really looked at a way to quantitate it. That is, you know, the papers show that the external limiting membrane fragments sometimes disappears, and that's associated with progressively worsening visual acuity. We also know that the easy is also associated with higher levels of diabetic retinopathy and with visual loss. So we thought, well, why not see if we could actually measure the distances between these bands and quantitate what we can qualitatively see on the scans? Let's talk specifically about enrollment. So you said that there were three groups, controls, uh, patients with diabetes, but no diabetic retinopathy, and then those with a mild non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. How many patients in each arm, and what did the demographics of those groups look like? Yes, so we had 31 diabetic patients and 14 control patients, 
And of the diabetics, 20 had no diabetic retinopathy, that is 20 eyes. 21 eyes had mild nonproliferative diabetic retinopathy, and we had 21 control eyes. And demographically, they were balanced with regards to age and gender. And then for the diabetics, they were balanced with regards to the duration of diabetes and also to the presence of hypertension. Now, as I understand it, we're looking at both the length between various bands and then the intensity of those bands on imaging. Let's first talk about the length between the bands. Did the research team find anything about length between bands that might serve as a biomarker for diabetic retinopathy? You know, that's a great question, Scott. And the answer is we did. And we were really excited to find this. When we look specifically at the length from, say, the externally limiting membrane to the inner segment of the ellipsoid, that's reflective of the inner portion of the photoreceptor, we found that that decreased as patients progressed from controls to diabetes without diabetic retinopathy and then to mild NPDR. We also looked at the distance between the inner segment of the ellipsoid zone and the intertitiation zone which also reflects part of the photoreceptor. And again, we found that that decreased as the um, level of retinopathy increased. And then lastly, we also looked at the interdigitation zone to the RPE distance and also found that there was a correlation there. And we also did some other measurements like from the ELM down to the RPE, and then also from different portions of the inner bands to what we call hyporeflective troughs, which reflect parts of the myoid zone and then the part of the calcaleal processes of the photoreceptors. So the bottom line is that if we look at the patients who had mild NPDR and we compare them to controls, there was definitely a difference in the inner segment ellipsoid to the interdigitation zone uh, for the central regions, for the perifoveal regions, and for the perifoveal regions. And then if we looked at patients who had no DR and we compared them to patients with mild NPDR, again, we found a difference in the length of the intersegment ellipsoid to the interdigitation zone in the perifoveal regions. What did the research team find when analyzing the intensity of these bands? Now, that's a great question, Greg. And you know, the intensity really reflects the amount of mitochondria that's present in per se, specifically in the inner segment of the ellipsoid where most of the mitochondria are concentrated. And we know that in disease processes, the mitochondria fragment and they shorten, they undergo fission. And so that leads to scattering of light and it doesn't reflect back as sharply. So the intensity will decrease as the disease progresses. When we compared the intensity of the external limiting membrane in the perifoveal region, that is, no DRIs compared to control eyes, there was a decrease in the intensity when the patients were diabetic but did not have retinopathy as compared to controls. We also saw a difference if we compared patients who had diabetes but no diabetic retinopathy to patients with mild nonproliferative diabetic retinopathy. Again, a decrease in the external limiting membrane intensity. When we looked at the interdigitation zone and we compared eyes that had mild NPDR to controls, or if we compared patients who had diabetes but no retinopathy to those with mild NPDR, again, there was a difference in interdigitation zone intensity. So when we looked at the intensity features and we noted that the inner segment of the ellipsoid zone significantly decreased, 
in terms of intensity. And whereas the RPE increase in intensity, we thought, why not create a ratio? Why not look at the intensity ratio of the inner segment ellipsoid to the RPE? And indeed, when we did this, there was a very nice correlation between progressing disease intensity and decrease in that ISE to RPE ratio. And so we thought, well, you know, this could actually be a very sensitive discriminator or biomarker, if you will, between controls and no diabetic retinopathy, but with diabetes, or even between patients who had diabetes, but no retinopathy and those who have mild non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. That is a lot of information to digest. Can you give us the take-home points of your presentation? Happy to, Greg. I think the take-home message basically is, is that OCT can be used as a biomarker. And specifically, we can quantitate the changes of the four outer bands in terms of length or intensity to determine how severe is diabetic retinopathy in these patients. So bottom line is that there are photoreceptor abnormalities in patients with diabetes who have mild NPDR, but also in patients who have no visible diabetic retinopathy. And the OCT can be used to distinguish between these patients from control eyes. And specifically, when we look at the regions, the perifoveal OCT analysis area is the area that is most sensitive for distinguishing these stages. And if we look at the intensity, it's the intensity of the inner segment ellipsoid zone band that is the most sensitive biomarker to differentiate the three groups that we study. How might these data be used in a real-world clinical setting or even a clinical trial setting in the near future? I think in the future, something like this could be useful in the clinic because we would see patients who have the diabetes and are already having more changes in their OCT, but not yet manifesting clinically. And this would be a biomarker for patients whose retinas are already experiencing damage from diabetes. And perhaps these would be patients that we would have to follow more closely. Or if there were a preventive disease for a diabetic retinopathy, we would target these patients. And then lastly, in terms of clinical trials, we would be able to stratify the patients specifically as to you know, micro changes within the retina in terms of severity and the effect of diabetes on the retina that we can't visually see yet. And could these imaging reports be read by, say, an AI or some sort of automated software, or would it require a human grader and evaluator to make these determinations? That's a great question, Scott. And this study was actually done using MATLAB software. And so these measurements were automated. And of course, we had to guide the program as we were beginning to do this. But once it was done, these analyses can be done automatically. So absolutely, an AI program can be trained to do this. And that program can be connected to the OCT machines. And these numbers can be automatically generated in the future. Dr. Lin, before we wrap up, are there any research members that you want to acknowledge specifically? Absolutely. I want to acknowledge my outstanding UIC bioengineering colleagues, specifically Dr. Shincheng Yao, who developed this entire program, Dr. Taiyun Song, and David Lee, who is a graduate student, who will hopefully be a PhD very soon. Great. Dr. Lim, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Greg.
Achromatopsia affects approximately 27,000 patients in the United States and the European Union. Because the disease leads to lost function of cone photoreceptors, patients with achromatopsia have severely impaired vision and are effectively dayblind. As of today, there are no approved treatments for achromatopsia, but researchers are hoping to change that. A pair of pipeline therapies for achromatopsia are under investigation, and data from their most recent studies were presented at ASRS this year. Those presentations came from Dr. Leila Vizovich. Dr. Vizovich is an associate professor of ophthalmology with tenure at the Duke Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. There, she is also the director of the Surgical Vitreoretinal Fellowship Program and is co-director of the Duke Pediatric Retina and Optic Nerve Center. Dr. Vizovich, thanks for coming back to New Retina Radio. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Familiarize our audience with chromatopsia. Give them the refresher course. Most certainly. So it is a genetic disease with two major points of mutations, one being the B3 mutation, which accounts for about 50% of patients with the disease, and an A3 mutation, which accounts for 25% of the patients with the disease. So those are the two most common mutations. These genes encount subunits or encode the subunits of the cone CGMP gated ion channels, which is essential to the phototransduction cascade. Gene therapy could, as a result, be used to address this condition. I see. Now, your presentation at ASRS this year reviewed two studies, one examining a treatment for the A3 mutation and another for the B3 mutation. What were you and your colleagues hoping to uncover with these studies? Well, Scott, as you pointed out, the phase one, two studies were really prioritizing the safety, um, being those were the initial studies to investigating patients. The secondary endpoints included visual sensitivity, light discomfort, best corrective visual acuity using EDTRS scale. But really, the primary endpoint was the safety. What can you tell us about the design of the two studies? The two studies were very similar in structure. There were dose escalating studies, but also age de-escalating study. So what does that mean? As the groups were being enrolled, the dose was being increased. But as we also entered the higher doses, we went ahead and included pediatric patients in subsequent doses. So that's what was the age de-escalating. As we saw, the safety in adults was good. We then um, enrolled pediatric patients as well. So in all studies, we had 24 patients for A3 portion, and then 31 patients were enrolled for the B3 mutation study. As you said, safety is the primary endpoint of both studies. So let's talk about safety both for adults and for children. Most certainly. So in adults, both gene therapies were safe and well-tolerated at all doses. So that was really interesting to see. Both gene therapies had favorable safety profiles below the dose-limiting toxicity threshold, which was also interesting to see. In children, however, the highest-dose study did reach dose-limiting toxicity, and intraocular inflammation, or IOIs, did occur. However, they did respond to steroids. The second highest dose was not deemed dose-limiting toxicity, and patients did well from safety standpoint. I know that the efficacy results were secondary endpoints, but I'd still like to hear about them. Can we start with the drug that addressed the B3 mutations? Most certainly. 
So in adults, we found responses to visual sensitivity, light discomfort, and the quality of left survey scoring. And those were actually very significant results. This was especially true in the second highest dose. Improvement in visual sensitivity was both robust and durable among the responders. We found that in two of six children in the group five cohort, which was the second highest dose, also had robust improvement in visual sensitivity. This is remarkable because it's challenging to test the kids, especially pediatric patient population with some of these um, secondary tests. We expect the best corrective visual acuity and light discomfort scoring to improve with time in children as they continue to be enrolled in the study, as we did see in adults as well. That's some great momentum. Can you also talk to me about the efficacy results for the treatment that addressed A3 mutations? Yes. In both adults and children, a majority of patients with an A3 mutation produce a non-functional protein, which we now believe may interfere with the intervention used in this study. Therefore, unfortunately, in the A3 mutations trial, we did not see same results. I see. So that means that there will be uh, no further study with the A3 gene therapy? That's correct. So the, currently, the company announced that there will be no further clinical development for the A3 trial. The company has advised and is using all the results from both trials to really move forward with the B3 intervention towards the phase three study. And insights, as I said, from these trials will really shape the, the trial itself and the design of that face the study. All right. Well, I hope we have a treatment on the horizon somewhere in the near future. Dr. Vizovich, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. That's a wrap for our coverage of ASRS this year. Be sure to subscribe to the pod to hear our forthcoming AAO coverage. And remember, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really helpful in guiding your peers toward the show. Bye.